indeed. Friends, if you'll remain standing out of love and reverence to God's Word and turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 3. Now this summer we have been going through the book of 1 Peter, as you know, and this is a book that Peter wrote to the elect exiles, those who are both in the world but called out of the world, called as a people. And two weeks ago, or three weeks ago, uh, Peter told us that we are to keep our conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. And then he began to explain that in in a way that we didn't expect. He began to talk about authority, something that we as Americans truly struggle with. He began two weeks ago talking about how we are to submit to the authorities in the government. And last week he talked about how we ought to submit to those in in the workplace. Well, this week, friends, he takes the argument home, literally. And he begins to talk about the roles within husband and wife within the marriage relationship. This week we're going to focus on speaking to the wives. Next week we are going to talk to the men. Uh, And this is a passage that's difficult for us as Americans. I'm just going to warn you right now. (laughs) But this is God's eternal, holy, and perpetual word for us. And so it is for our good because he loves us and it is good that we hear it today. So here now, out of love and reverence to God's word, 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 to 6. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won over without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Do not let your adorning be eternal, or external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, by submitting to their own husbands as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. And so ends God's Word. And friends, what do we know about God's Word? The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Indeed, God, this is your word. And so we ask that you would speak to us clearly through it. Would you build us up so that we might give you praise and glory, so that we might glorify you in the midst of this world. Help us to have open ears, humble hearts, and help me to speak clearly. And we pray this all in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. As we've been saying throughout this summer, 1 Peter is a book written to elect exiles, those who are in the world and yet called out of the world. And uh, Peter, as well as Paul in other books, calls us to live out the calling that we have received as those who have been called out of the world. And that involves a transformation of our lives, which begins with a transformation of our thinking. But often when we approach Scripture, what, what Scripture gives us seems strange or foreign to us because we are still exiles. We are still those who are being called out of the world. And depending upon how that word conflicts or rubs against the cultural idols which we have embraced, it can seem offensive 
or utterly perverse. And I think this passage here in 1 Peter 3 is one such passage. Maybe you felt a visceral reaction. Whether you're a, a wife or a husband or you're just someone who's breathed the American breath of independence and gender equality, maybe you felt a visceral reaction when you heard things such as wives be subject to your own husbands or to have a gentle and quiet spirit or maybe when when Peter holds out Sarah and says that she called Abraham Lord sometimes we're we're lucky because what scripture tells us coincides with our culture and it's just a slight tweak and then there's other times when it's just a full-on head-on collision with our cultural idols and I think that's what we have here today. Maybe, maybe you felt it. Maybe, maybe this cultural anthem seems a bit more akin to what you're used to. And this is from Leslie Gore's song, You Don't Own Me. You don't own me. I'm not just one of your many toys. You don't own me. Don't say I can't go with other boys. And don't tell me what to do. Don't tell me what to say. You don't own me. Don't try to change me in any way. So just let me be myself. That's all I ask of you. I'm young and I love to be young. I'm free and I love to be free to live my life the way I want, to say and do whatever I please. Friends, I think as Americans, we all resonate with that a little bit. We all have that independent spirit where we want to be able to say how we want to live the way that we want. And yet there's something still unique about this passage, isn't there? We've talked about the authority issues over the past couple of weeks, but this passage, as our American ears hear, it seems unfairly sexist that it's calling wives to subjection to their husbands simply for the fact that they are women. And friends, what I want to do is I want to say, I think we need a completely different starting point. I don't think we can even start where we are. We need a completely different starting point. And that starting point that I would suggest is this. The role of submission is not a penalty that is levied on wives or women. But it is a glorious blessing that is given to all of creation where wives have been given the honor of reflecting the humility and the gentleness and the quietness of Christ Himself in the midst of this dark world, all for the sake of the glorious gospel of grace. Now, Peter starts this passage by saying, Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands. Um, Last week, Dr. Fowler did an excellent job of setting the context for this passage, but it's worth going back and and, and remembering what that was. Starting in chapter 2, verse 13, if you, if you want to look in your Bibles, there are, th- there are three blocks that Peter gives us that follow a consistent pattern. First, in, in chapter 2, verse 13, he says, Everyone be subject to the Lord's sake to every human institution. So we, all of us, are called to be subject to submit ourselves to the authorities of the government. Then he moves on to, ver- to verse 18. He says, Servants... Be subject to your masters with all respect. That all of us who are in the workplace are to submit ourselves, willingly put ourselves under the authority of those in the workplace that the Lord has given us. And then he comes to chapter 3 and he says, Likewise, wives, be subject to your husbands. That wives are called to willingly give themselves in submission to 
to their husbands. All these authorities, Paul tells us, have been established by God himself. There is no authority that is there except what God has established. And, and, he, and Peter is saying these authorities exist and we are to willingly submit ourselves to them. Now Peter's hearers, his original hearers, would not have been shocked by this command for wives to be subject to their husbands because, as Dr. Fowler pointed out last week, each of these groups, the, the exiles, the servants, and the wives, these are all marginalized people. These are people that, in the context that Peter's writing to, would have already been in submission. And so for them to continue in that was no surprise. But as for us as Christians who have the whole corpus of Scripture and some of the other writings understanding what the Gospel, it's still a little bit surprising to us. because this, this is surprising because Paul had told us that there's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, but we are all one in Christ Jesus. And what Paul is getting to is that as far as reception of the Gospel of grace, these social distinctions that were there at the time when Peter is writing and Paul is writing, they don't exist. As, insofar as it comes to receiving the gospel of grace, that gospel is for every one of us, regardless of our social station, regardless of whether we're male or female, regardless of anything. And so we might think that if we are one in Christ Jesus in receiving the gospel, that that would translate into our day-to-day -day lives. And yet, neither Peter nor Paul take that stance. Neither of them disrupt the social order that is already in place. In fact, they reinforce it. They establish this authority, this inequality between husbands and wives. And it may have also been surprising because if we know what that would have meant for those women in that, that particular day... Women in that particular day were highly dependent upon their husbands, and it was expected that a wife would carry along with her husband as he went to whatever religious practices he did in his particular culture. So if he was a pagan following other religious practices, it was expected that she would go with him. And given Peter's call to holiness, to worship the one true and living God, we would expect Peter to say, if your husband's going to worship some other God, you separate and you worship the one true and living God. And yet he doesn't do that. Instead, he, again, reinforces this relationship. And we know that this applies even to unbelievers because he continues in verse 1, he said, so that even if some do not obey the word, and the word being the word of God, if some do not obey the gospel, even in that case, wives, submit to your own husbands. And I think what, what we're seeing is Peter does not break those down because the, these roles of headship and submission to headship are not culturally defined, but these have been in place as part of God's design from the very beginning. Uh, Paul gets to this in a couple different passages. In 1 Corinthians 11, he says this. He says, For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head. And Paul says in, in 1 Timothy 2, he says, I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, 
then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. He's pointing back to creation. He's pointing back to the, the ultimate design. And God had weaved into our, the very fabric of our being the concept of authority and submission to authority. As image bearers of God himself, he has made us in that way for that particular purpose. And yet there's conflict even from the beginning. If you remember back to the, the fall, as part of God issuing the curse upon the serpent and man and woman, when he says, he, one thing he says to the woman is he, say, he says, your desire will be for your husband, but he will rule over you. Now that, that word desire is not meaning I have a longing for my husband, but it's more akin to what is there in Genesis 4 when he's talking to Cain. And he says to Cain, he says, sin is seeking to be your master. Its desire is for you, but you must master it. So if that's the picture that he's giving to Cain, and you think back to what he says to Eve, essentially what he's saying to Eve is he says, Eve, now in your fallen, rebellious, broken state, your desire will be to master, to rule over your husband. But he will or must rule over you. God, the, the, the relationship is strained, and yet God uh, maintains that social relationship of authority and submission to authority. And so, getting back to our passage in, in 1 Peter 3, it's obvious why, why Peter is not breaking down this, this social agenda. It's because this is part of God's perfect design from the very beginning. There's, there's something about this that is glorious and wonderful and, and reflects the goodness and glory of our God. So, we have to ask ourselves, well, what, what, is, what does it mean for wives to be subject to their husbands. And this is where it gets a little fuzzier, I would say. A, a number of commentators point out that Peter doesn't really specify specifics of what that means, and, and wisely so, because they argue that there's something about submission in the context of marriage relationship that is culturally defined. There's something about submission that is culturally defined. For instance, in Peter's day, he... Uh, it was expected that a wife would submit to her husband in whatever the religious practices were that he followed, and she was to go along with him. That's not so much the cultural expectation for us in 21st century America. And it's also wise because there's some element of freedom, even within a marriage relationship, to define what submission means in the context of that marriage relationship. Another, for instance, some couples may wholeheartedly believe that only a man should be doing the finances within their marriage because it is an act of authority. He who controls the purse strings is an authority. And so only the man should do it. Whereas other couples may say, well, hold on. My wife is an accountant. She was trained for these things. She's incredibly gifted. It is an act of service to me, to our family, if she does this. And both, are, both can be true. Both can be right. It is, it, is, it is determined in the context of that relationship. Um, so there is some flexibility there. But Peter does give us some parameters, doesn't he? Uh, the first is, he's, he's saying wives sub be subject 
to your own husbands. There is, there is an element that the wife is following the lead of her husband and she is willingly putting herself under the authority and the direction of her husband. She is deferring to him for ultimate authority. That there, there, there may be an element, of, it may be practical to try to work things out to com- communicate as far as the way we ought to go, but ultimately, if there's a conflict, she is deferring herself to her husband. Uh, secondly, there, she, she is respectful. Uh, and, and Peter says this in a couple different ways. In verse 2, he says, when they see your respectful and pure conduct. And then and later when he, he uh, talks about Sarah, and he says, Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. Now, you know, all joking aside, you know, we, we don't need to get worked up about this particular passage. Peter's not saying, wives, you need to call your husbands Lord. Husbands, you can't be saying, you need to call me Lord. Nothing like that. This, this was a cultural reference that it was akin to us saying, Mr. or Sir. And Peter's basically getting to the point that she had this heartfelt respect for Abraham, so much so that she was willing to address him with a title of respect, that it was part of how she thought of him and how she related to him. So thirdly, a third way is is pure. So when they see your respectful and pure conduct, this is a a holy and a chaste uh, type of response that she needs to be single-minded for her husband. And she needs to be pursuing an image of beauty that is as God defines it. And, and he, he goes on to talk about this. He says, don't let your adorning be external, braiding of hair, putting on of jewelry, clothing that you wear. And, and just a moment, let's, let's talk about that for just a second. Paul, Peter's not giving a command for women to be completely austere. He's not saying no jewelry, no makeup, you know, no fine clothing. That's, that's not his point. The Lord has made women beautiful. And women are... Uh, tempted in particular ways to adopt a, a, a view of beauty that is cultural in nature. I know you ladies feel this because the images are everywhere. And you know that your husbands are seeing them as well. And, you're, and your friends. And, and, and you're measured by how you, you feel like you're measured against these cultural images. What he's saying is your, your beauty, your, your, your holiness, your purity ought to be not governed by that particular definition, but governed by a definition of beauty that is how the Lord defines it. So there's, there's purity involved. Um, and and then, he, then he talks about gentleness. The, the, they, they need to model a, a care and a gentleness of spirit. They're not harsh or rude in the way that they carry themselves. And then finally, a quiet spirit. Um, this isn't meaning that they can't speak, they can't talk. In fact, uh, talk, uh, Proverbs 31 talks about uh, the, the mouth of a woman speaks wisdom. So there's speaking that's involved, but, but a wife ought not to, to attempt to dominate with words, either good words or bad words. That she's, it's a disposition of her heart that's gentle and quiet. So he kind of defines these parameters, but I think the question we have to ask is, why? Why has he put wives in this particular spot? Why, why has he called wives in particular to submit, be subject to their husbands? And I would, I would argue that what Peter is outlining, he's, he is defining a profound ministry that he is giving to, to, to wives. 
And it's a ministry that is not inferior in any way or any less uh, characterized by strength or leadership or courage than the ministry that he, he gives to men. But, but rather, he is giving ladies the distinct privilege of living out in living color for us the humility and submission of Christ himself. Um, and, and we see this in, in, in three different ways. So the first way is he's giving, us, he's giving these ladies the distinct privilege of dispensing beauty in the humility and gentleness of Christ. So Christ, let's take a step back. Christ was the perfect person, perfect man, but perfect person. Uh, and he was many things. He came to reveal God perfectly. And he, he revealed so many things. He was, he was kingly in his protection. He was the perfect prophet proclaiming the truth of God. He was the perfect priest interceding on our behalf. And, um, and men are given the role to follow in those particular roles in an official capacity. Men are given the role of being protectors, of ruling in their households and ruling in the church, of being the ones who are called to be the prophets in the midst of the church and, and, and the priests. And women are called to those very same things. Women absolutely protect. Women absolutely speak the truth of the gospel to one another. Women absolutely intercede for one another, but in a general sense. And, and Scripture is clear that the official capacities that the Lord puts forward in these, in these regards are given to men as a part of His pattern. And I would argue that what, what the Lord is setting forward here is that wives are given this charge to submit in such a way that the, that the world as a whole, the church and the world as a whole, see the submission and beauty of Christ. Now, are we all called to be humble? Absolutely. Are we all called to submit to one another? Yes. But even in the context of mutual submitting, the roles are different. The way that a husband submits to his wife and the way that a wife submits to her husband are drastically different. And he assigns to women this role so that it gives a beautiful picture to all creation. In the midst of this whole authority passage, we see in, in ch at the end of chapter 2, Peter goes on this tangent to talk about Christ. And he says this, he says, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. He had a pure conduct. And when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. He had a gentle and quiet spirit. But he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. That's the picture that Peter gives of Christ. And immediately he follows that with a picture of wives have pure conduct. Wives have a gentle and quiet spirit. He's saying, reflect this beauty of humility and quietness of, of the, your Savior for all of us to see. Um, the pattern, that's the pattern Christ set for us, but we want to ele elevate ourselves. We want to say, I want the best. You know, our culture says, you know, pursue 
pursue the best. Pursue authority. That's, that's, that's the better. I, I, I just want to be myself. I just want to do what I want to do. This, this pattern of humility is just so foreign to our ears. And, and isn't that what Paul writes in Philippians 2? He says, he says, even though Christ was in the very nature of God, very nature of God. He was God Himself. He didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped. But He humbled Himself, taking on the form of a servant. And ladies, what I would ask you is, are you grasping for equality as though that's something worth holding on to? Or are you willingly giving yourself in service to your husband and to the world as a means of reflecting the beauty and the majesty of what Christ has done for all of us. All of us are called to that. And yet, wives have been uniquely set apart and gifted and, and positioned to be visible reminders of the gentleness and quietness of Christ Himself. And we, all of us, are conformed to Christ's image as we follow your example, there's tremendous leadership in this. Tremendous beauty. And so a word to husbands. I would have to ask you, are you, have you, have you identified that beauty of what your, Christ is, or what your wife is doing in her relationship with you? Do you see Christ in the sacrifices that she makes in submitting to your authority? Recognize this is, this is no slouch task. She is submitting to you. And it is, it, is, it is an act of service out of love for her Savior. And it is beautiful. Point it out. Encourage her in these things. Let that humility and, sub and submission rub off on you. The second, the second way that Peter gives us that this reason why this is so valuable, why, why the Lord has established this, is because when wives are clothed with the imperishable beauty of Christ Himself, they're able to participate in the Holy Spirit's work of redemption in the life of her husband. Uh, look at this. It says, Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be one without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Now, Peter would be the very first to talk about the primacy of the Word of God in bringing about change, bringing about uh, redemption in the life of an individual. Maybe you remember this back from chapter 1. He, says, he said, You have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding Word of God. And this, is the word, is, this word is the good news that was preached to you. It is the Word of God that brings about change. And yet what Peter seems to be saying is he says, wives, even if they don't obey the Word of God, there's still hope. There's still hope because they may be one without a word by the conduct of you, by the conduct of their wives. So, when you imitate Christ, you are a living sermon in the life of your husband, in the life of your family, in the life of the world. We believe that the, the Word of God is powerful and effective, and it is the Word of God, the, the Gospel itself, that, that brings about change by the power of the Holy Spirit. But it brings about change. 
And when it brings about change in your life, the whole world can see it. And talk can be cheap, but when your life exhibits the beauty of the gospel, when you willingly do this thing that is so counter to everything that we would believe, and you submit yourself to your husband, and you have a gentle and quiet spirit, God is saying He may use that conduct to win over the heart of your stubborn husband. And I think if you think about it, you you might be able to see this in action. Think of two women that you know. Um, One woman follows the cultural example of what a woman ought to look like. She's loud. She's sassy. She tears down her husband. She's rude. And then think of another woman that you know that is gentle and quiet and has a, a gentleness of spirit. She's respectful of her husband. In your own dealings with her, with, with these two women, which are you more likely to get into an argument with? Which are you more willing to, give, to show grace, to allow them to speak into your life? Which one is more likely to build up her husband in the context of the responsibilities that he has. It, it, doesn't matter. You don't, it doesn't matter what they're wearing. It doesn't matter how they're adorned externally. You know which one of them is beautiful. You know which one is glorious. And wives, I think this, this drives home the point. I don't know if you realize what level of impact you have on your husbands. Whether they're those who obey the word or those who do not obey the word. If, if you, are, you have the ability to win them over if they don't obey the word, then how much more so when they do obey the word? Your husbands have been given an immense charge. They have been called to lead you, to protect you, to shepherd you, to care for your soul, to care for the soul of your children, to love you as Christ loves the church. They will be held accountable for how they shepherd you and how they love you and how they care for you. And you've been charged to be a blessing to him, to support him, and to build him up and to encourage him in those very things. And it's so necessary. Leadership can be incredibly lonely. And yet man was not meant to be alone. The Lord created you and put you into his life to encourage him in how he is loving you as Christ loves the church, in building him up. You have the power to tear him down and to make him feel weak and incapable of carrying out the the responsibility that he has. Or you have the power to encourage him, to lift him up, and to empower him to do that which the Lord has called him to do. It's a tremendous gift that you have. Serve him. Give him courage for the task that he has. Help him carry that burden. Serve him as he attempts to serve you. But ladies, I have to point out, even though you have this opportunity, this responsibility, you are not your husband's savior. You are not your husband's savior. Only the Lord Jesus Christ is your husband's savior. And yet you have the opportunity to be instruments in the hands of your loving Savior as he works in the life of your husband. But you have to be careful to be used as an instrument 
in the way that the Lord calls you to do. Not with a war of words. This, he says, even if some do not obey the word, they may be won over with, without a word. It, it's not for you to be getting into an argument to say, I've got to fix this. I've got to convince you. I've got to, I've got to force my way because you're going the wrong way. He's calling you to a humble and submissive following of his lead, even when it's not the right way, even when it doesn't seem right. You're an instrument of the Holy Spirit, but you are not the Holy Spirit. If your husband does not obey the word of God, why do you think he will be won over by your words? If your husband does not obey the word of God himself, why do you think he will be won over by your words? You have an opportunity to love him and to trust your Savior and to be obedient in the midst of that conflict. When words fail, your actions and your conduct, your God says, can prevail in winning over your husband. A gentle answer turns away wrath, and a quiet and submissive and gentle spirit can win over your husband. Obviously, there's tremendous fear in that. Because what am I going to get myself into? Where is, the, where is my husband going to lead me? There's tremendous fear in having to submit to anybody else because you lose control. And where is it going to go? And it's in, in especially the case when your husband is not trustworthy or respectable. But, but ladies, there is not a man in this, in this room, there's not a man on this planet save for Christ himself, who was ever respectable enough to deserve your respect. It is something that you are giving to them as a gift out of obedience to your Savior. It, it is something that you give even when they're not respectable, especially when they're not respectable, because that is a picture of Christ himself giving himself to his people. When, when, when we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We, he didn't wait till we had it all together where we knew where we were going. He l- willingly laid down his life for us. It's, it's hard enough to submit to a man who is righteous, who, to a man who is seeking to do what the Lord is calling him to do. And yet, Peter then gives us a picture of Sarah. And he holds out Sarah as this picture that, ladies, you need to, to emulate. He says, this is the picture. Let's talk about Sarah. Think about the story back in Genesis 12. Sarah and Abraham were in the land of Ur of Chaldeans. God calls them out and says, go to a land, I'm going to show you where to go. He brings them to the land of Canaan. They are exiles, elect exiles who have been called into the midst of a foreign land. And from there, Abraham and Sarah go down to Egypt. And they're now in a completely foreign land. And Abraham starts to panic. And Abraham says, Sarah, you're beautiful. When we get here, they're going to think that you're my wife, which you are, and they're going to try to take you as their own, and they're going to kill me. So tell, tell them that you're my sister. Lie and say that you're my sister so that they'll spare me. And she submits. She goes into Pharaoh's household, and she submits. So let's get this straight. Abraham is terrified. He's not trusting the Lord. Sarah submits to, I'm going to say I'm, I'm his sister and I'm going to go into Pharaoh's household, presumably as one of his women. 
And that is the picture that, that Peter gives us to say, you are, be like that. That's, a, those, those, that's, that's submission. How could he possibly do that? How could he possibly hold that out as a pattern? And I think Peter gives us two clues. He says, this is how the, the holy women who hoped in God, who hoped in God, Sarah was hoping in God as her ultimate authority, the one who was truly watching over her. And then he says, and you are her, your, her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. <clears throat> she had, Sarah had this tremendous courage in the midst of Abram's fear. He panicked. He was being a terrible leader. He was, he was telling her, he, he wasn't saying trust the Lord. She was the one that was trusting the Lord, knowing that the Lord had put Abram as her head to watch over her. And if the Lord did that in his infinite wisdom, then the Lord was going to watch over Sarah. And so she did what she knew to be right. She submitted to her husband, went into the midst of this circumstance. And that's the, that's the third, third reason why the Lord has given you this charge, to demonstrate the trustworthiness of God himself as you exhibit trust in the midst of the most ridiculous, situ- ridiculous circumstances. Your God has called you to trust, and God was perfectly trustworthy with Sarah. Do you remember what happened? He goes, she goes into the, the household. The Lord afflicts Pharaoh, and Pharaoh comes to Abram and says, dude, this is your wife. Why didn't you tell me this? What, you've brought harm on my whole household. Abram is silent. The Lord per- delivered Sarah out of the midst of this circumstance because she, I think because he, he was revealing himself to be trustworthy in the midst of her trust. He was faithful to her. But Sarah was just a signpost to Christ himself. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. That's the calling for all of us, friends. Regardless of the type of authority that we are in, whether we're submitting to the government or submitting to our workplaces or submitting to our husbands, we are to, we're, our God is completely and utterly trustworthy. And we are called to, be, to reflect that trust, to show how, how faithful He is, that He will deliver us, that we don't need to grab for the right way to do things, that we follow His practices even when they don't make sense because He is utterly and completely faithful. Sarah was just a signpost. And wives, you are her children. When you clothe yourself with that same beauty and you do not fear anything that is frightening. So remember that song, You Don't Own Me. <clears throat> That's true to a certain extent. Our husbands, husbands don't own your wives. And yet we have been bought with a price. We are not our own. The Lord Jesus has bought us for our very own. But he's bought us to set us free. He has bought us that we might live lives that are glorifying to him. And what he calls us to do is to submit ourselves, to willingly give ourselves in submission. Not, Not to say, you don't have this right over me, but to say, I am giving you this right out of, because of what Christ has done for me. Ladies, may you be clothed with the beauty and the majesty and the glory of the humility and submission of Christ himself. And may all of us, 
May this watching world be won over by your beauty, the beauty of Christ himself, for his glory alone and for our benefit. Let's pray together. Oh Lord Jesus, this is a high task <clears throat> that you've given to all of us, particularly to our wives, but we, it is a glorious task. We thank you, Jesus, that you are our forerunner. You are the one who was humble enough that by your humility, by your submission, you have brought us salvation. And now you have transformed our lives so that we might submit to you and we might be emblems of, of your, your grace. Help us to live this out. We desire to give you glory. We desire to live in a way that is pleasing to you. And we pray this all in Christ's name. Amen.